And so, Father God, we pray that you would bless your word, that the seed of your word would fall on good ground, and that you would smile on us and save someone's soul today. It is to that end, Lord Jesus, that I'm available to you. Use me, Lord God, for your good ends, for your good purposes in this house today. It is in Jesus' name we ask. Amen and amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. Please meet me in 1 Peter chapter 3. So if you have your devices, take them out and click on your Bible apps and meet me in 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. We're going to finish out chapter 3 today. And uh, our plan is to finish our study on the book of 1 Peter the Sunday before Christmas. As you're turning there, um, I want to bring to your attention a book that I wanted to make sure that we would have uh, in our bookstore here. Um, When we lived in Memphis, right before I moved to New York, the most painful thing my wife ever had me do was we were leaving our wonderful home in Memphis and uh, we're moving into a 900 square foot apartment uh, in Manhattan on the Upper West Side. And my wife looked at my 5,000 books and said, they're not coming with us. And so it pained me. It pained me to get rid of 5,000 books in my library. There were only three books in that library that I would read multiple times. So most times uh, when I read a book, I'm done with it. I move on. And uh, the top, my favorite book outside of the Bible, my own personal library, is a book written by a man named A.W. Tozer called The Pursuit of God. The Pursuit of God. If you've never read this, you need to read it. In fact, it is said that uh, A.W. Tozer actually wrote this in one night on a train. And uh, it's one of those books where you read it, the, the anointing on these pages, you just feel something burning in your heart. So we've got them in our resource center. I for sure, this book has meant so much to my own personal growth and longing for God. It just inflames my passions for Jesus. I wanted to make sure that we have this available for you. And so please, 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 whatever you can, if you can't do it this Sunday, it's going to be around in perpetuity. Whenever we sell out, we'll just order more copies. So please feel free uh, to go pick up a copy. Also, thank you all so much for uh, all the love you showed uh, us uh, last week. Uh, My book just came out, my most recent book, and that's available for you as well. It's a book all about grace, Saving the Saved, How Jesus Frees Us from Try Harder Christianity into Performance-Free Love. So if you've ever struggled with guilt or shame over your sin, this book will, will uh, hopefully bless you and will be an encouragement to you. First Peter chapter 3, pick me up. In verse 13, Peter writes, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them. Nor be troubled, but in your hearts, make note of these words, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. I love these words, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having, verse 16, a good conscience. So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. 
For Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, verse 21, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. There's that phrase again, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. Recently, on a Saturday Night Live skit, the comedian Amy Schumer is playing a six-year-old girl who abruptly interrupts her local city council meeting. She gets to the podium and she says, I want to make a motion that every day at my school we have extended recess and all you can eat pizza for lunch. The crowd chuckles like some of you, this cute little girl. And then Amy Schumer takes it up another notch. Playing a six-year-old girl, still behind the podium. She says, and I am pro-life. Praise Jesus. People are now starting to think this little girl is being weird. She then says, I want to make two more motions. One. That Bible is taught at my school every week. And that the Bible teacher is Jesus. And the second motion she says I want to make is that in this Bible class taught by Jesus. That we would ban gay people. It's not natural, she screams. It's not natural. The skit ends in silence when one of the adults says, you're freaking me out. You know, you sit there and you watch this skit as not just a follower of Jesus Christ, but a follower of Jesus Christ in, in what is, I believe, the most secular region of the country, the Bay Area. And you watch this and you cannot help but think, is this really what the world thinks of Christians? Their caricature of what it means to follow Jesus seems to have Christians as this weird, abrasive, bombastic group of people who are completely out of touch and out to lunch. And something in your heart sinks in which you say, if this is what the world believes about Christians and what Christians think and how Christians behave. We've already been behind the eight ball. Is there any hope for us winning the bay to Jesus Christ? I got a little de de depressed hearing about this skit. And then I had to remind myself that when we come to the book of First Peter, that Peter is writing to a group of Christians who are living in a secular society. 
It was Rodney Stark, the great Baylor sociologist who wrote in his seminal book, The Rise of Christianity, in which Rodney Stark points out that by the end of the first century AD, by the end of the century in which Peter is writing, Christians only comprised less, less than half of 1% of the total Roman Empire population. But by the end of the fourth century, Christians would make up 7.5 million people and would be sanctioned by the Emperor Constantine as the state religion. Now, I'm not here to argue whether or not it's good for Christians to be the state religion. There's a lot of things we could say about that. But here's the question I want us to discuss for the rest of our time together. What do we learn from Christians in a secular society like Rome who goes over the course of a couple hundred years from being this fringe group, less than half of 1%, to being the state religion in which the Emperor Constantine actually legislated, passed a law that emblazoned on every Roman soldier's shield would be the insignia of the cross. How did that happen? I think that's good for us to wrestle with here in the Bay. Christians in the Bay are a fringe group. We only make up of 10 million people, 2 to 3% of the Bay. This is not the Bible Belt. This is not Atlanta. It's not Birmingham. It's not Memphis where the people are just so nice. This is Teslaville. So what do we learn? How, how can Christians flourish in such a way that Christ is exalted and lifted up and we actually make Christianity appealing to people and, and, and get rid of the caricatures in such a way that we are able to win the bay for Jesus. Now don't look at me as if this is a hopeless task. Nothing is impossible for God. So I believe, if, if I didn't believe the bay could be one for Jesus, trust me, I'd have, I'd have stayed in New York City. I believe in this book, and I believe in God, that God can pour out revival in this place. But if God is going to do that, the question on the table is, how is that going to happen? How can we see the bay one for Jesus Christ? Our text actually gives us the blueprint. Friends... If you and I would just commit to doing what this text says, I believe we in our lifetime will be the first generations of believers in the Bay who will see an outpouring of the Spirit of God in this place, and we can actually see revival happen if we would only do what this passage says. Well, what do I need to do? Peter gives us both the method and the message for how to win people to Jesus Christ. He begins, look at verse 15, after some introductory remarks. He begins in verse 15, after having talked again about suffering and mistreatment. Peter in verse 15 begins by laying out the blueprint for how we can see people in the bay come to faith in Jesus Christ. He says in verse 15, in your hearts... Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now this phrase, make a defense, is the Greek word apologia, from which we get the English word apologetics from. It's the idea of defending the faith. 
But here he's not talking about an individual or a group of individuals who are these incredibly intelligent, learned people who have a PhD in theology or philosophy and can debate the atheists of the world. He's not talking about apologetics in that sense, no. What he is actually implying and presupposing is that I am living my life in such a way that my life is so peculiar that people now are provoked to ask questions. He is implying that people look at your life and they say, that is so different. We've got some questions for you. We want to ask some things about faith. Now, this is important in Peter's day. Because in Peter's day, as it should be now, Christianity was not just a fringe faith. It was a, it was a group of very peculiar, very peculiar people. Christians in Peter's day were a group of people who actually claimed to follow a man who had been accused, condemned, convicted, and executed as a criminal. Oh, and this man actually claimed to be God in the flesh. Oh, and they also said that on the third day he got up from the grave and resurrected with all power in his hands. And oh, he ascended back to heaven. And oh, he's coming back again. Peculiar. Peculiar. Not only that, but Christianity, like our culture today, was birthed in a culture of pluralism. Now, you may not know that word pluralism, but you know what it's about. The idea of pluralism is this idea that there are many faiths, there are many roots to God. So you be a good Mormon and you, you be a good Muslim, you be a good Buddhist, you be a good Christian. That Christianity is just kind of one buffet item amongst the whole buffet. Christians said no. Christians are not just an option to God. Christianity, Christians said in the first century, is the option. They would quote John chapter 14, verse 6, when Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes into the Father but by me. Peculiar. In Peter's day, Christianity was peculiar because not only was it pluralistic and the person they claimed to follow, but Christianity was, was birthed amongst a rigid society that had established a caste system where there was rich and poor and rich never fraternized with the poor. But here you had the church and you walked into the church and you would see rich and poor together and sitting down at love feasts and enjoying and sharing life with one another and masters hugging slaves and slaves hug hugging masters all under the cross of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And you would walk in there into that place and you would go peculiar. But not only that, Christianity was birthed in a Greco-Roman society steeped in their own version of Jim Crow, which is called segregation or which was a rigid kind of a racism where Jew and Gentile never came together. But you walked into the first century church and you couldn't believe it because there were Jews in small groups with Gentiles and Gentiles loving on Jews. And the great tragedy of the church of the 21st century is that we can go, that's the black church, that's the white church, that's the Japanese church, that's the Mexican church in heaven heaven, there is no zip codes. There are no segregations. There are no red lines, but there are people from every nation, tribe, and tongue loving on one another and worshiping God with one another. The, homo the homogenous church is not peculiar. Peculiar. But finally, it was peculiar because 
like today, we live in a society that has legislated it's okay to kill babies. And in Roman society, they practice something called infanticide. They killed babies. There are letters written by men in Roman society away on business trips. Their wives, they know, are about to have a baby. And these men say in a very cold, callous way, if it is a boy, keep it. But if it is a girl, you discard it. Christians not only refuse to practice infanticide, you could also find Christians right outside the walls of the city looking for babies who had just been thrown over the walls, wallowing in their blood. Christians were the only group of people who would take care of these babies peculiar. Christianity in the first century world was always on trial. People were asking them questions. Why do you have as a Gentile a Jewish friend? Or why are you a rich master hanging out with your slaves and treating them with such dignity and respect? And Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within. So what he's saying is, peculiar living should provoke peculiar questions. Give that to you again. Peculiar living should provoke peculiar questions. In other words, this is the ouch part of the sermon. You might want to tell your neighbor, get ready to say ouch. If Brian and Corey Loritz are not being regularly asked questions by unsaved neighbors, co-workers, parents at kids' basketball games as to the peculiar practices of our lives, there is no way we are representing Jesus adequately. My life. This doesn't mean I'm belligerent. It doesn't mean I act like I'm better than people. It doesn't mean that I'm arrogant or judgmental. But people should look at Jesus in me and the way that I work, the way I treat my spouse, the way I conduct my business. They ought to just look at me and go, that's different. Can you talk to me about it? Single people should blow people's minds. But you ain't having sex with your boyfriend. Peculiar. Peculiar. Well, how do I live a peculiar life? He tells us right here. Verse 15, in your hearts, honor Christ as Christ the Lord is holy. The idea of holy, it literally means set apart. It literally means to be different. I remember just thinking about this growing up watching, I think it was either the electric company or Sesame Street, one of those. And they used to have this song, one of these things don't belong. Come on, help me somebody. Y'all, y'all remember, y'all remember that you'd have maybe 12 things and 11 of them were marbles and one of them was a rock and you had to pick out which one was different. When, when he, that's the idea of holy in the sea of marbles, the rock would be holy. It is different. It is set apart. He says in your hearts, I want you not to make Christ holy. Christ is holy. Whether or not you make him that way, he is holy. He says, honor him, lift him up, which means this. If I have a peculiar set apart Jesus living in my life and I'm just following him, if I'm following this peculiar, different Jesus, then guess what's going to be said of me? I'm peculiar. I'm different. Had a great aunt once. Aunt Marion. She, um, <laughs> she, she bought a set of 
sofas one time and she thought they were so valuable that she never took the plastic off. Come on, go with me. Somebody, anybody ever have a great aunt or a grandmama or, and when I say never took the plastic off, I'm talking for decades, never took the plastic off. You would watch it, you'd walk in Aunt Mary's house and there would be her little living room and you'd look at these sofas in the plastic and the first thing you would say is, now that's different. That's different. You sit on them, they'd make a different noise. Don't, in fact, don't, don't even sit on them if you was a little bit sweaty. You slide right off them bad boys. They just different. You know, Peter's saying, don't take the plastic off of Jesus. So that when people walk into the living room of your life, they say, now that's different. What, what does this look like? Let me give you a couple examples. I, uh, uh, you know, uh, when, when, when I lived in Memphis, I just get, I just would get so frustrated. You know, I, I love the saints, but I, I need to be around. I need to be around as a Christian. I know y'all work with pagans all week long, but as a Christian, my, my job necessitates, I, I be around saints all day long and I love saints, but sometimes saints can just get on your nerves. So I, I needed an outlet. So I just, I got in with this golf group of some old salt of the earth, many of them not even saved people. And, um, you know, we'd start playing golf together and, uh, you know, on the golf course, they, they're cussing, but I wouldn't cuss with them, but I, I'd never be judgmental of them or whatever. And, uh, I would tell them, yeah, I'd have a little running joke. You can cuss just as long as it's, you know, in the King James version, I won't unpack that for you. But, um, so I'd hang out with them and sure enough, they start, you know, calling me rev. They hear about what I'm doing and I'm, you know, making relationships with them after a couple years. And one, one day after a couple years, one of them says to me, now rev, you, you, you come with us on our annual golf trip? I said, yeah, absolutely. I want to come with you. Where are y'all going? Florida. But he said, now, Rev, Rev, we want you to come, but Rev, on this golf trip, we want you to come on. Rev, we're going to have strippers. I said, now, let's, um, let's parse that last sentence. Rev, you're going to come on the golf trip with strippers. Uh, that's just, that, that don't, those two words don't even go together. And we start having a conversation. I says, no, I can't go. And well, why can't you go? And I start talking about you know, my relationship with my wife. And then it comes out that they just assume that everybody cheated on their wife. And I had to actually have a conversation. No, I don't, I don't cheat on my, my wife. And this wonderful, beautiful conversation. And why don't I cheat on my wife? And they're asking me these questions. And Peter talks about always be prepared. Living in the Bay. I mean, we see stuff in the Bay that we never saw in Memphis. I just, I just didn't see it. You know, sitting at my boy's basketball game, uh, one, of, one of the players has two moms. They're married to one another. Uh, the, the, his biological father was at the game the other day. And I'm sitting there talking to one of the moms and so far she doesn't know what I do for a living. But I get talking and, and I'm asking, how'd you meet your wife? And you know, talk to me about the relationship and what's happening here. And sure enough, after a couple conversations, she feels comfortable enough to have her son come over the house and hang out with my son. And 
We've just invited her and her wife to come over to our house for dinner. We're making plans for that. I can't wait till they walk up in our house and they see the Bibles and ask me what I do for a living. That might be a real quick dinner. But here's what I love about that. What's going to blow her mind is the way I'm treating her does not fit the caricature that she has of Christianity. And I just want to encourage you, some of y'all, your whole lives, all your personal time is just spent by saved folk. God bless saved folk, but you need to have margin in your life to do life with people who are just different, don't believe what you believe, don't see it the way you see it. But guess what? That's what it means to follow Jesus because he went to dinner parties, not just with saints, but with prostitutes and tax collectors and loved on people who look so radically different than him. Now, I'm not okaying you to hang out with prostitutes. Um, That might not go well with your wife. But anyways, you get the point. So he says, live a peculiar life. So how do I win debate for Jesus? It just begins with, I'm just going to live differently. Not arrogantly, not belligerently. I, I, I follow a different Savior. And to follow him means if he's different, then I'm just... I'm just going to live different. But secondly, I love what he says in verse 15. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Hear it, hear it, hear it, hear it. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Hear me. There's one thing Christians have blown it. It's with this. We've got with the so-called moral majority, the religious right. I I, I hate to say it. If Jesus were here today, I, I just don't see him picketing a gay pride parade. I don't see him getting on someone's Facebook page in the comment section just saying mean, harsh things, but are so full of truth, but it's just mean and harsh. That's not the Jesus I know. You know what he's saying here? He's saying, listen, and I want you to get this word. I want you to get it in your spirit. He says, you're living a peculiar life. People are asking you questions. When you give answers, he says, I want you to remember that while the gospel may offend, the way we say it must never offend. Are you getting this word today? What we say may be offensive, and I'm okay with that. You tell people of what the gospel really means, and that Jesus, we're talking about this in just a few moments, Jesus came to save sinners, and you say that as, as nice as you want to say it, but you call somebody a sinner, that's just a, that's just a tough sell. But while the message may be offensive, the packaging must never be offensive. He said, I want you to do it with gentleness and with respect. Thirdly, how do I win the bay for Jesus? He says, verse 16, having a good conscience. You know what that means? Integrity. You know, integrity is the best sleeping pill there is. The best sleeping pill 
is integrity. What is integrity? We've been teaching our boys this from the time they were little. Integrity simply means the alignment of words with deeds. It simply means I do what I say. So here is Paul. He is emphasizing living over lips. He's emphasizing walking over talking. It is as if Paul is, as Peter is saying, so what if you talk all this stuff, if it does not flow from a life that is going in the same trajectory of your lips, then that's going to render the gospel ineffective to those around you. They're not going to want anything to do with you. I remember, I remember when I was first learning how to cook, first learning how to cook. Um, I called myself frying some chicken. I, I know y'all don't fry chicken on the West Coast. This this tofu country, uh, but um, Rocky. Uh, but I was frying frying some chicken, fry, frying some chicken. And um, man, you know, have you ever looked at some chicken and it just looks so pretty? I was frying this thing. It was that pretty golden brown, and man, it just looked the button. Now, some should have told me. My, my first problem was it was pretty golden brown after about two minutes. And this thing looks so good on the outside, so wonderful. It is the bite. Just do this is going to be the best piece of chicken ever. And sure enough, you know what happened when I cut into that bad boy. It was a hot mess on the inside, but it looked so good on the outside. But because it was a hot mess on the inside, I backed away and did not even think about eating that. The problem with so many Christians is we are pretty golden brown on the outside, but the world backs away from us because when they cut in to our lives. Our character is not done. So Peter is saying what's going to make the gospel effective is it flows from lives that aren't perfect. This isn't perfection, but it's a life that says I'm actually trying to buy what I sell. That's what he's saying. Paul gets to this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, where you look at what he says, and I want you to hear the integrity. He says, you are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Paul says, look, I, I lived this thing. I just, I just lived it. You don't need to have a, a degree in Greek or MDiv to be a successful communicator of the gospel. Just a heart that takes God's word seriously and says, I really want to live this humbly before people. That sets the stage for people to buy in. All right, now that's just the method. I live a peculiar life. I do it with gentleness and respect. I walk with integrity, but that's just the, the method. The method is important, but the method doesn't save. No more than, than me going to a hospital with an infection just because I lay in a warm bed and, and have a great doctor with a great bedside manner and eat good food. That's not going to cure me. What's going to cure me is the medication. Now let's give you the medication. When you share the gospel, what do people need to hear? Three things right in our text. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered... Once for, underline it, sins, the righteous for the, underline it, unrighteous 
that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Here's the hardest thing people need to understand. When I open my mouth and share the good news, I have to, first of all, convince people that they are sinners. Sinners. Here's the hard part. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, what does the Bible say about you? What does it say about me? We are not good people. Now it's quiet in here. What does the Bible have to say about people outside of Jesus Christ? It is very clear. We are not good people. Here it is. We don't just sin. Who we are are sinners. Again, as I've told you before, as my friend uh, uh, Tom Schrader says, if sin were blue, we'd all be Smurfs. Why? Because sin colors every area of my life. The Bible is clear. There's none righteous. No, not, wrong, not one. In Psalm 51, uh, David's great confession of his sins. Listen to what he says in Psalm 51. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Paul said it this way in Romans 5 verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin. I came into this world a sinner. Now, what does my sins do? Two, my sins separate me from God. This is in the text. Verse 18. Look at it with me. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, underline this phrase, that he might bring us to God. You see it. My sins separate me from God, which means I cannot get to God on my own terms. I'm as hopeless getting to God on my own terms because of my sins as me thinking I can get into Stanford University, but I graduated high school with a 1.8 GPA and scored a 550 on my SAT. I don't care how nice you are. You ain't getting into Stanford because of your record. Likewise, you and I cannot have a relationship with God. I was on an airplane recently and I'm sitting there. And the guy sitting next to me is kind of freaking me out. He's, he orders about two or three Jack and Cokes before we even get off, you know, get off the ground. And he's just downing them back and forth. And finally, I just couldn't contain myself. I said to this man, are you okay? And uh, he said to me, well, this is my second time flying. And the first time the oxygen mask came down. And, you know, he says, we almost crashed. And I'm saying to myself, please don't say that word right before we take off. Well, I decided if ever there was a good candidate to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, this young man was it. So I just, you know, just went for it. Just went on in there. If you think you're about to die, we might as well go ahead and have the conversation right now. So I just, you know, just dove in there with it. You know, well, where are you on matters of faith? And I'll never forget what he told me. He goes, well, you know, I'm a very spiritual person, he says. You know, he says, on well, one day I'll, I'll go to the, the Mormon temple. Another day I'll go to the Muslim mo- mosque. And another day I'll, I'll chant with some of my Buddhist friends. And, and I'm listening to him. I'm pretty much thinking, you're making your way up. You think you can get to God on your own terms. You're thinking that you can kind of cut and paste your own God degree with a bunch of your own electives. That's our society. 
Our society fundamentally says, you be a good Christian, she be a good Muslim, she be a good Mormon, and it's all good. The third and final thing you need to understand is it's not all good. I'm a sinner, my sins separate me from God, and guess what? Jesus Christ is God's only provision for a relationship with God. Only provision. One of the things I, I would love to do, I mean, Corey, she's been in the car with me. Uh, when we were in New York City, we'd take an Uber to church on Sunday morning. And many times uh, the Uber driver would be uh, uh, some Muslim from some African country. And I'd launch into the gospel presentation. Well, I remember one drive. Uh, honey, you can remember this. We're on our way to Brooklyn. I'm just sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with him. I'm asking this Muslim, what do you think about Jesus? And here's what he says. Well, you know, Jesus was a good man. He was a prophet. I said, well, interesting. We Christians believe that Jesus Christ was actually God in the flesh. And, and he said, well, we don't believe. But he pretty much says, well, I'm glad that, you know, you guys think that. And he says to me in so many words, you be a good Christian, I'd be a good Muslim, and I'll see you on the other side. And I'm going, I want, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're saying two fundamentally different things about Jesus that are diametrically opposed. Both of us can't be right. If two people stand outside right now and one person says the sky is blue and the other person says it's raining, somebody's lying. So here's what Jesus says. Well, let me take you to Bono. Let me give you a rock star on this. Bono, a man who loves Jesus, quotes from C.S. Lewis when he says, when it comes to Jesus, he's either Lord, lunatic, or liar. Good man, not so much. You either take him at his word or you throw him out. So Jesus says, Again, I am the way, not a way. I am the truth. I am the life. John 14, 6, read it for yourself. No man comes to the Father but by me. There may be multiple routes to your home after service. You may take the freeways. You may take some back roads. But when it comes to heaven, only one route, and it goes through Jesus. So he ends by saying, Christ also suffered once for sins, underline this phrase, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Let, let me end on this. This is what I call the just injustice of God. I want you to pull me, I want, I want to pull you into God's tension. God looks at you, friends, and he says, I love you. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, God looks at you and says, I love you. And I've been watching you wear yourself out, uh, trying to find success and fulfillment on your own terms and, and, you know, trying to make sense of life your own way. But you're tired, you're frustrated, you're here. He says, I've sent this preacher, this, this man, Brian Lewis, to tell you the good news of Jesus Christ. And that good news is, I love you. I want a relationship with you. But here's the problem. Here's the tension. On one hand, God says, I love you. I want a relationship with you. On the other hand, God says, I'm angry with you because you are a sinner. You have violated my commands. You've tried to live life on your own terms. And I can't invite you into the kingdom and have a relationship with you without dealing with your sins. So my love says, I want you. But my justice says, I cannot overlook your sins. Do you see the tension? 
There's a young girl at our church in Memphis, incredibly bright, incredibly intelligent. Ace the essay, the, 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 the ACTs. Uh, she graduated with four point plus something off the charts GPA. She had actually made it into the school of her dreams in Ivy League school. And yet she didn't have the money to get into the school. And the school didn't offer merit-based scholarships. They only offered need-based scholarships. So the school says, we want a relationship with you. However, in our justice, we've got bills to pay. We just can't let you in. In, and there's no earning your way into this scholarship. There's no performing your way into this scholarship. So here's what we'll do. We will give you a need-based scholarship that satisfies our just demands and allows us to have a relationship with you. That's what Jesus became for us. God says, I love you, but in my justice, I'm not going to ignore your, your sins. Jesus says, I will be their need-based scholarship, not your merit-based. Can't work your way into it. Can't perform your way into it. We call that grace. Now, I want you to hear me. Last thing, every New Testament point has an Old Testament picture. Say that with me. Every New Testament point has an Old Testament picture. The New Testament point is Jesus Christ, the righteous one, died for we, the unrighteous. What's the Old Testament picture? Imagine... If you're a little Jewish boy, a little Jewish girl, and you wake up one morning in antiquity, and you're so excited because one of the sheep has just given birth to a lamb. And that lamb is cute, and you take to that lamb right away. In fact, you become so enamored with that lamb that, that you decide to actually name that lamb. And let's say you name that little lamb Johnny. And every day you play with Johnny as a little boy or a little girl. Every day you are running in the yard with Johnny. Every day you are wrestling with Johnny. Every day you are holding Johnny. Every day you are carrying Johnny. And then one day, Dad shows up and abruptly grabs Johnny out of your hand. And you say, Dad, where you're going? And Dad says, I'm going to the temple. Well, why are you taking Johnny? Dad says, because I've sinned. So here he takes Johnny, who's done nothing wrong. No spot, no blemish. He is flawless. He is a perfect uh, lamb. And he takes this lamb into the temple. And at the temple, he goes to the priest. And the priest takes it from your father. And the priest ties it to the altar. And the priest takes a knife. And he slashes Johnny's throat. And you listen to Johnny scream. Why? Because this lamb who had done nothing wrong, this righteous lamb, had to die on behalf of your unrighteous father. On the cross, Jesus Christ became our Johnny. On the cross, Jesus Christ, who had done nothing wrong in him, there was no sin. And yet God loved us so much that he was willing to give his only son, Jesus Christ, to satisfy his just demands that you and I could have a relationship. And you want to turn down that kind of love. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? I want the band to come. That's the gospel, friends. If we live peculiar lives, answer with gentleness and respect, 
have good, clean consciences, not perfect, but flow from lives of integrity, and we tell people this good news, we set the table for revival in the bay. But if you're here today, and I believe if you don't know Jesus Christ, God has ordered your steps into this place today. I believe that when Adam and Eve were looking for a fig leaf to hide under in the garden, that God wrote November 6, 2016 in his divine eye calendar app, and he ordained that you would be here today and hear this message. And I say under the authority of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, if you leave without saying yes to Jesus, and you die. On that judgment day, God is going to bring to your remembrance that time you clearly heard the gospel, and you said no, and you will have no one to blame for all of eternity. You will spend, and I don't say this to frighten you, an eternity separated from God. And yet God is saying today, I'm laying before you life and death. Choose life. Choose life. You can say yes to Jesus. I want every head bowed and every eye closed in this place. And I want the saints to pray one prayer. Father, don't let anyone leave here today without saying yes to Jesus Christ. Let's pray that prayer right now. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior and you want to say yes to him, I believe right now the Holy Spirit is drawing on someone. It's like a game of tug of war in your heart and life. The Bible says the day you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Would you just relinquish control of your life? And would you, would you say yes to the one who loved you so much that he gave his righteous son to die for your unrighteous life? If that's you, would you come? Would you meet me at the altar? If you would say yes to Jesus, would you come?